With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we haven't talked about Afghanistan lately, but we need to. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. It's almost the one-year anniversary of the pullout of America and the other allies and the mess that Kabul became. A friend of ours from over in India joining us. He has a great piece out in International Policy Digest. Pratamesh Yamul joining us from India. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hello, I'm pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled to have you. Okay, let's just start because let's be adults here. Most of the world stopped paying attention right after the Kabul fall. fell. Everybody got upset. They were mad for about a week or two, and then everybody worldwide moved on. Pick up the story from there because for the people of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan's population doubled over the 20 years of the American war there. Pick the story up there. What what happened after that that kind of led us up to what's going on now a year later? So basically, after the fall of Kabul, the Taliban managed to take over most of Afghanistan. There was um, an attempt by members of the previous uh, democratic government, such as the vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and um, Ahmed Masood, uh, who was, I guess, a military commander. He was a uh, son of the famous Ahmad Shah Massoud. There was an attempt by them to put up resistance in the Panjshir Valley. Um, in uh, It's, I think, north of Kabul, as far as I remember. And there was an attempt to put up resistance there, which didn't last for too long. You know, they weren't that well supported. They were support- surrounded from all sides. And um, after that, for the most part, the Taliban was able to take at least military control of the uh, country. But what they haven't been able to form a government or an administration in the strictest sense. They have formed a government, a state, they've appointed their leadership, but there's been quite a quite an issue with the amount of control they can exert over the country and also how effectively they can govern, uh, administer and um, enforce laws, among other things. One of the biggest problems they faced ever since they took Kabul and took over Afghanistan has been um, an organization called ISK or Daesh K, which is, uh, it is basically an affiliate of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq that we know so well. And it's the local affiliate of uh, ISIS called ISIS Khorasan province or Vilayat Khorasan. And they have basically, um, they were carrying out an insurgent and terrorist campaign even against the previous democratic government. But they've kind of used the chaos that came with um, the taking of Kabul and, you know, the Taliban trying to form a new state, new government to exert their control over most of the country. They've used that chaos to um, exercise terror, basically. They've had had constant attacks on the Taliban, Taliban troops, Taliban police, and they've done constant... um, terrorist attacks on civilian places. They've attacked mosques, they've attacked hospitals, they've attacked um, schools, they've 
as recently as yesterday there was an uh, not yesterday i'm sorry as recent as a few weeks ago or a month ago there was an attack on uh, gurudwara which is a sikh religious site in kabul where uh, an isis militant attempted to uh, kill a bunch of uh, peaceful worshipers basically and these attacks have been for the majority been focused like the terror attacks have been focused on civilians and have disproportionately affected the minority communities like the shia muslims and uh, sikhs and hindus in afghanistan and um isis k has kind of been unrelenting in their attacks on the taliban and the civilian population they've constantly kept up the pressure and they've used this chaos to kind of um form a stronghold of sorts in two major provinces in uh, northeastern afghanistan mainly nangarhar and kunar province and um, a third called nuristan where they have a somewhat lesser pr- presence and these are high mountainous provinces you know hard to get so they've basically stuck there and formed a kind of local base there and ever since they've constantly been attacking civilian sites they've been attacking taliban members and they've been trying to sow as much chaos and create as much instability as they could and basically that's what's been going on there've been major attacks they've attacked um they've attacked shiite mosques they've attacked uh, sikh religious sites they've attacked hospitals they were, i think they attacked uh, a maternal hospital if i'm not wrong they've also carried out very sophisticated for um for the region they've carried out very sophisticated terrorist attacks on um the afghan power grid they've attacked uh, power electricity towers which resulted in blackouts for large portions of uh, afghanistan and they did this on a very strategic uh, time they did it close to the e- holiday of eid and um basically they've been trying to sow as much chaos as possible if you uh, remember during the american pull out from afghanistan or the fall of kabul there was a suicide attack at kabul airport where uh, american servicemen died and you know 170 or so afghans died if i'm not wrong and uh, this attack was also carried out by isis khorasan so basically they have been attempting to uh, use the chaos and the i i'd say position of instability that always comes with a new armed revolution taking control to basically advance their agenda and they've been attacking basically everyone in the region now on the outside observers because we don't always pay real close attention to this in the west especially in american media when americans aren't involved people probably are wondering why are they fighting There's some important differences between ISIS-K and the Taliban though. The Taliban of course came out of the Pashtun nationalism, the tribal people, they were the original um the Mujahideen if you're old enough to go all the way back to the Soviet era. Uh for lack of a better way of explaining it, ISIS-K sees them more locally and they see themselves as more of the international branch. There's some other ideological differences though. Why is it a shooting blood for you? You call it a turf war for our western parlance. this is just going to be an internal thing right there's not going to be any detente here there's not going to be a peace among them right not likely because well for one this is i call it a turf war because this conflict is not only ideological but for some of them it's personal 
you see isis khorasan actually formed from a breakaway group of what uh, of the organization that is tehreek e taliban pakistan which is basically the pakistani taliban uh, so two of the major leaders who formed isis k one of them was hafiz said khan who was a pakistani from tehreek e taliban pakistan and another one uh, i can't remember his name but was a pretty high uh, taliban leader afghan taliban leader so this isn't just ideological but is also quite literally uh, the result of personal disputes within the leadership along with this there is of course the fact that um, that basically both organizations are kind of going for the same core audience they're say they're going to recruit the same core group of uh, radically inclined uh, people who are ready to fight along with that this conflict also has its roots uh, kind of in the general conflict internationally among uh, jihadists that we see between al qaeda and uh, the islamic state the islamic state broke away as a part of al qaeda and uh, they both claim to lead a worldwide islamist movement so it's partly because of partly because they're you know going for the same position they're not going to have any form of detente because Islamic state claims itself to be a province uh, Islamic state in Khorasan claims to be a province of um the global Islamic caliphate they will have an amir the Islamic emirate of Afghanistan also claims to have an amir as their leader you can't have two um, leaders in one place and the, so there's not really as much of a scope for a detente especially because they also come from two relatively different streams of um, islamic conservatism the taliban are deobandis which is an islamic uh, revivalist movement a fundamentalist movement that was founded in uh, colonial era india and uh, it has its roots much closer to pashtun ethnic um, nationalism and their ethnic code called pashtun wali while um the islamic state is salafist you know they have their roots in the middle east and they they have a much more global outlook for one and another thing is that um the islamic state is kind of a kind of an attraction for those islamists in afghanistan who are not pashtuns like tajiks uzbeks we can see this especially because an organization called the islamic movement of uzbekistan uh merged with isis k very early on because historically um the taliban has been a pashtun dominated organization and when they ruled in the 90s it was not a good time for a lot of non pashtun people in afghanistan and those memories still stand and especially because the democratic government of afghanistan was dominated by these ethnic groups which are non pashtun so there's a certain ethnic element to it in that a lot of people who share similar fundamentalist views probably would feel that um isis might be more conductive to them they might have a better place there than a somewhat nationalist ethnically based movement like the taliban yeah i'm proud of mostly joining us uh we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to get back into his article uh at international policy digest how the taliban's doing actually running the country as opposed to just being the operational forces a lot of bad news there also talk about the future afghanistan update what's been going on over there our friend pat amesh joining us on herd tell more right after this break 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Padmesh Yamul from over in India joining us. We're talking Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, you mentioned it in your article. We've linked to it, International Policy Digest. Make sure you read the whole article for yourself. Part of the problem with the Taliban is having now, and it was very predictable because we talked about it during the drawdown and the total chaos that that was when they took over Kabul. Um, they have to actually govern now. And they're not only actually having to govern but they're having to govern over a very different country than they used to govern before the American intervention. The population has doubled. The population is extremely young. The average age in Afghanistan is like mid-20s now. And there's still a country that is very, very strained on resources as it always has. And now all that American money is gone. This looked like a recipe for disaster for them to try to rule because they don't have any experience running a country. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And now with all these issues, like with ISIS-K, you've got a lot of people fighting over a dwindling amount of resources and a very, very stressed population, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have you have a country that's been at war for pretty much 43 years now, continuously. You you also have a situation where the Taliban does not really have many international allies. They don't have access to international streams of funding. Any resources that the uh, former government had, the you know Ghani government, they're all frozen in international banks. The Taliban does not have a lot of money per se, and they don't exactly have yet the expertise to rule or administer a country as either. They've basically spent the last 20 years fighting a guerrilla war against uh, American and uh, Afghan security forces. And they they have never had, even though they've held territory for quite a long time, unlike a lot of other guerrilla um, movements, they've never attempted to, let's say, form a local administration or a shadow administration in place. They've in the war in Afghanistan has been a constant, you know, hide and seek game between uh, allied forces, uh, NATO forces and between the Taliban. So that leaves a situation where the, the Taliban have now won. And a lot of them will be asking themselves, OK, what do we do now? Along with this, there's also how do I say it? There's also certain amounts of internal conflicts between the Taliban. There is, of course, the issue that there is the general Taliban that um, exists in Afghanistan is not exactly a centralized leadership. It's made up of a lot of local warlords, local forces, a lot of people who switched over to the Taliban only in recent times when, you know, the wind started blowing the other way. There's also the issue of a large block in the Taliban is made up of the so-called Haqqani network led by Sirajuddin Haqqani, which is quite literally a, a whole separate organization within the Taliban. There's also an issue 
regarding um, differences between the Taliban political leadership, which has been in Doha, and you know the one that once that negotiated with the United States who signed the agreement, and the actual on the ground, you know, military leaders, and we don't know whether the military leaders would want to you know toe the same line that the political leadership would the political leadership definitely wants to rule and administer in whatever way they see administration being but a lot of for people who have been at war um for longer than their whole lives it raises a question of how do you ease them into um a civilian peacetime administration uh, in a country like Afghanistan, where conflict is so prolonged, there's not much left to get money from. There's not there's not mu there's not much uh, sources of funding left for reconstructing a government. Along with this, at least as of yet, we have not seen the Taliban try to moderate their stance on any of their major issues, and um, this means that you know the international community is not going to help them that much either. Right. And, um, things. I'm sorry, I'm Pat sorry. Mishkin, uh, joining us. Uh, part of the reason they cannot get the international community, though, is not just their own brutality. As predicted, they did the massive crackdown on girls and women. You addressed it in your article. Um, let's just be honest here. People that have spent years as guerrilla fighters, they have a rigid ideology when it comes to women and minority groups and other folks and other religious groups they're really in a corner here that they're never going to really get international recognition unless they have some dramatical revolutionary change in how they do things. Is that still the stance because we saw the crackdown on women and girls in schools and all that? Is there any hint at all that they're ever going to change? Because I'm very skeptical that they will. I don't think so, honestly. And, you know, recent events have given us even more um, food for thought in uh, on in the sense that um, in around three days ago in Kabul, uh, there was an American drone strike that resulted in the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the longtime leader of Al-Qaeda, the second most important person in Al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden. Now, one of the major factors in America signing a deal with the Taliban was that the Taliban promised in their Doha agreement in 2021 not to support Al-Qaeda, not to allow them presence in Afghanistan. and um, they've clearly broken that. So not only are their policies not conductive to an international, um, let's say, acceptance, not only have they broken an international agreement, now it's very clear that they were housing the most important Al-Qaeda leader in their, in their capital, nonetheless. And um, they have not denied it. They have, in fact, called this an American uh, attack on their sovereignty. And, of course, you know that's a different debate but the the point that comes here is that they've basically create made themselves even less um ideal as a partner in international eyes and now that they've also been harboring the leader of probably world's most infam infamous terrorist group it's just worse Pradamishi Mel joining us. Let's let's talk big picture for just a second. We know what happened. We know what a mess Afghanistan is. Talk about the people of Afghanistan because this we just talked about it. The population has doubled. This generation didn't live under the Taliban previously, almost any of them. They are now. 
you ended your article on kind of a down note of like, you know, the real story here is this is a country that has suffered immensely and they're going to continue to suffer and they're going to have even more chaos. Is there any hope for Afghanistan at all right now? Because something like the Zahawi strike, that means even less America paying attention because obviously they had a network to make that happen. We They had to have, you know, some inroads. They're probably going to care even less now that you don't have something like that to go after. The world is not paying attention to this. We're one year removed from cabal falling. You know, you can't find Afghanistan in the headlines. Are they just doomed to another couple decades of this mess? Is that where we're at with this? I mean, it's likely. Now, the issue with ISIS Khorasan is that the Taliban has been trying to deal with them. You know, they've been trying to deal with them in a military and uh, counterinsurgency sense. But the Taliban has been, for lack of better uh, phrasing, has been using an approach that can be described as, you know, every problem is a nail if you have a big enough hammer. And this has led to a lot of civilian casualties, a lot of, um, let's say, extrajudicial killings, a lot of collateral damage. And that's not how you run an ins- run a counterinsurgency. You know, the more innocents you kill, the more you give credence to the ISIS's claim that this is an illegitimate government or an illegitimate administration. While the Taliban, while ISIS has a very small presence, let's say territory-wise or uh, in terms of personnel, they've been conducting attacks widely beyond this uh, territorial presence they've been attacking they've been conducting regular attacks in kabul they've been conducting regular attacks everywhere and the more the taliban you know tries to deal with this with a blunt approach the more it's just going to worsen things and i don't know about uh, the next 30 years of conflict but this thing is going to rage for a while especially if you know uh, they don't get help from foreign actors and they haven't been able to in- improve their relations with their neighbor neighbors either. You know, they've had uh, border clashes with Iran and we have seen how Iran res- uh, responds to instability on their borders. You know, they have responded to instability on their borders in Iraq and Syria. We don't know what they would do in Afghanistan. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not really very bright for the future because while the Taliban has gained control over their country, they're not being able to um, exercise exercise the ability and uh, let's say power that a normal government does. They're constantly having to deal with issues which if it was in a conventional state somewhere we'd see, we just call it a failed state. Like so basically for the next at least five or ten years i see maybe this conflict simmering down a bit in five years or ten years but it's very rough because isis has shown that you can take their territory you can kill their militants they'll just have more and the thing is they don't need a lot of people to carry out the the kind of attacks they are carrying out and another major issue is that isis khorasan is operating in the provinces bordering Pakistan and they have a major presence in Khyber Pakhtunwa which is the province of Pakistan which borders um, Afghanistan so this becomes a you know transnational problem and the border around those areas is very porous so and it there's a lot of highland mountainous territory which the Taliban will find it very hard to 
you know exercise a, an effective counterinsurgency operation in now the other option then defeating them militarily is um, coming to terms with them and i i feel it might be a possibility for taliban but as said before they have too many differences for them to properly come to terms in an agreement and i just see this conflict getting worse for the next couple of years because the taliban is not being able to exercise effective uh, monopoly of violence in their country basically they're not being able to uh, make sure that they're the only actor who can you know use armed actions and as long as they aren't able to do this they're basically all can operate as a failed state and i don't see that changing for quite a while yeah oddly enough the uh, same things that allowed them to operate for decades and come to power themselves is now limiting their ability to stay in power and keep stability uh Mishimul, great stuff today one last question for you though for the western audience because our news media is basically ignoring this unless something like the zawahiri thing happens or god forbid you know there's a massive death toll or something like that what's a good way for folks to keep track of what's going on in afghanistan what should they be watching for because there's always going to be these little clashes what should the Western audience and the American and English speaking world audience be watching for that something is changing or something is getting better or worse over there? They should be watching for, honestly speaking, this conflict for now has been very steady. It's been very, for lack of a better word, it's been, it's been consistent, but cons like consistent in a negative way. There's not, there's no changes that have been occurring for Western audiences. I'd say, there's always news about it. It's just buried underneath a lot of other, um, let's say, more important things for the West, maybe. But I would advise uh, just keeping, I would advise being informed about what ISIS does and what ISIS says. Because um, as with the Middle East and ISIS, they're, you know, very vocal about what they're trying to do and of course the uh, the taliban has also become more media savvy they're putting out releases about their supposed counterinsurgency operations and the successes of it i would try to look for the impact on the civilians the moment you see the impact on civilians lessening you know there's you find out that there's some kind of solution uh coming up but unfortunately for now it's not like that just recently you know uh, in something that's more closely related to my uh, location, uh, there's been a relative mass exodus of Afghan Sikhs uh, leaving their country and fleeing to India because it's simply not that safe anymore. Because there's ISIS targeting them, the Taliban is not going to help them out that much. They're infidels for the more radical members of the Taliban. So, you know, you have a community in the few hundreds of which there are scores fleeing back to India and of course um, while I'm happy they have a safe haven here to come to it's also sad that they have to leave homes which they have occupied for centuries and it just shows that you know the most important thing here is the civilians and until we see less civilians being affected it's it's not gonna get better
Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on, but he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Karim Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a, a few days ago. But just in the few days since you read it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others, are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah. And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad. That's a great term. You should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the <laughs> domain name for it because that's exactly what they're doing. We throw around terms like um, colonialism and imperialism, but then when you look at China, where well, they're being imperialistic about things, but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this, that's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece. In the modern world with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history, but it's very different in the modern age. And they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic, one man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England, and he was protesting, and he got snatched up. But it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used. Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, so his name is Drew Pavlou. He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, he's made headlines for a couple of years now. Famously, he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui, that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now, um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. And um, a few months ago now, or a couple of weeks ago, he was protesting in front of the Chinese embassy in London. And essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy. The embassy called the police. He was arrested. He was in you know jail for 24 hours, like no access to uh, consular assistance. Um, he was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not, you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, he was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, and all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags, um, ended up with him being arrested for like 
threatening to commit a terroristic act. And the thing about this is, and as you detailed it, the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the Chinese officials, the CCP and their intelligence and their security apparatus, they've targeted him before. So the fact that he was just standing out there, they knew they knew well and good who this guy was, and they made sure it was a very specific, oh, this is the guy that did that, right? Absolutely. And the exact same thing happened to him again this week in Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now. But yeah, it just continues. The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high-profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, and then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing doing this. And the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide. And you touch on that. Absolutely. Um, like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now. Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people. Um, especially on college campuses too, there's, you know, the CSSA, uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association, which, you know, there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well, that a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders. Let me ask you about that because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS, that was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging. And the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists. How's it hit you? Do you feel, a, do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of, I need to explain to them why this is so important? Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before and they all talk about it. It's like, this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden and do you feel it? Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation, but I want to share my story and the story of other Syrians and what they've gone through because, you know, my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in Syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else. And that's why I have a lot of empathy, you know, for these um, diaspora communities from China and from Taiwan and from Hong Kong, because, you know, their plight is 
it's different, but it's similar, this, you know, reverberating effect of authoritarianism, even when you're diaspora, it still affects you every single day. So. Yeah. And what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing. A lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline, just prepping. Obviously Syria was, is a terrible thing. When you see that's kind of the end game of it though, where you just have leveled sit, literally you talk about Aleppo, like just rubble for most of it, unfortunately. Talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people that's why this is so important because that is how, you know, that crushing a dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad. We need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands, tens of thousands of people being dead. Yeah, unfortunately, you're correct. Uh, Kareem Rafai joining us on Hertel. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We come back. There's more in this piece. He talks about Iran. We're going to talk some more about China. We're going to talk some more about dissidents and Russia. All three of those heavily in the news cycle right now. We're going to work through them with our friend Raheem Jake, Young Voices contributor. Great conversation, deep conversation, but an important one to have. Hertel continues right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost that protest can have. Um, on that vein, we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking, really, in Iran. We have massive protests, the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police, they call it. She died in custody, and especially the women and others are protesting back. They're getting killed in the streets for it. We've seen this before in 2019. We've seen it before other times in Iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown. When you're talking about dissent and how important it is and protesting, how's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. But when you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing, 
boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery. People standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It really is inspiring. And that's why I, in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. Um, and the case of Masih Alinejad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the U.S., who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that, you know, just a couple of weeks after the, oh, the assassination attempt of um, Masih Alinejad and also Salman Rushdie, that we have these mass protests in um, in Tehran. Compare and contrast those two because hers you heard almost nothing about. And I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rusty obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a fatah for what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. Why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now, also, Rusty's was on video, so that's part of it, to be fair. And he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it? Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is. We need to be paying attention to every act of Iranian-sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishti or a prominent activist like Masih Alinejad. We need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's it's honestly egregious that an Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Now, to come back to China for a minute, we know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, we know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this, but it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, they, they, because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? 
Absolutely. You're right. It's a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew, um, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, they're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City. Now, you also, we talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese-Australian dissident, Vicky, uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it, too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different, boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush dissent is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one. I actually, I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP. Her personal text messages being publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad. Yeah. You also made a point to kind of draw these uh, desperate threads together. You know, the, the, the wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Alinajad they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries, we're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So how do you fight back against it? Absolutely. And I, I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, it's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens. It's absurd. Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are afraid to upset. They want to do business with China, so they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. 
But what you're saying, little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about. I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though? Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the U.S. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak. There's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's, it's really great to see. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. That'll do it for Hertel. Remember, we'd love to hear from you. Hertel Show on the gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, Hertel Show on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Always happy. This doesn't work if you're not listening. So wherever you and yours are, thank you so much for listening. Until we talk to you again on Hertel, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll see you real soon. Right back here for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.